With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. And I see this awesome cinder block building where they had a lot of their work. I'm like, hey man, where'd you get the building? And they're like, oh, Civil Affairs built it for us. And what, excuse me? I still, to this day, I don't know if that was planning or serendipity, but it was such a great example of how two organizations working in the same area with the same people, because they were in the same place, each of them, their mission went further. They're able to accomplish more by being in the same place. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. The 1CA Podcast is brought to you by the Civil Affairs Association. And today our guest is Mr. John Barson. He's the Acting Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. He assumed these duties on April 11, 2020. Previous positions include Assistant Administrator for USAID's Bureau of Latin America and the Caribbean, Principal Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Partnership and Engagement, OPE. Mr. Barson began his career at DHS as Special Assistant to Secretary John Kelly. He deployed to South Florida to assist with Hurricane Irma, and deployed to Puerto Rico where he designed the complex and challenging FEMA response to Hurricane Maria. His civilian experience in the executive branch extends back to the administration of President George W. Bush, where he was appointed to lead several senior level coordination efforts with the private sector and support legislative efforts for NASA. After the creation of DHS, he created the DHS Office of Public Liaison. Mr. Barsa entered public service as a member of the U.S. Army Reserve, initially with the 11th Special Forces Group and later with the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion. During that time, he started working in the U.S. House of Representatives. Much of that work as a congressional staffer focused on defense and national security, with part of his portfolio focused on support for democracy and human rights in Cuba, Nicaragua, and throughout the Western Hemisphere. In the private sector, he's held positions with the Defense Trade Association, small businesses, and large businesses. And he's the son of a Cuban refugee who grew up in a fully bilingual and bicultural family in Miami. He has a bachelor's degree in international affairs from Florida International University and is a graduate of Syracuse University's National Security Management Fellows Program. Mr. John Barso, welcome to the 1CA Podcast. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with all your listeners. Thank you. And so we want to start at the beginning. You're the son of a Cuban refugee, as I mentioned, growing up in a bilingual family in Miami. How do you think your childhood influenced your career path in your decision to join the Army Reserve, especially with the 11th SF Group and later with the 450th CA Battalion? Well, certainly, um, growing up the son of a Cuban refugee in Miami is clear early on coming out of the womb, um, knowledge that politics is a contact sport. Take the example of my family. You know, my family in Cuba was solidly middle class. My mother, like any young girl, you know, had aspirations of, you know, a family and career. And it's really politics that interrupted her dreams. So, and she, and at the time, I think it was the largest, you know, migration of people, you know, after the revolution at the time in 1959, early sixties, all of these dreams are put on hold. This, all this human potential gone out the window and paused as people migrate to South Florida and other places. So growing up in that environment, you know, you realize that uh, the act of people, I mean, the acts of people in terms of governance makes a difference. So certainly in the military, you, you clearly, and, and for any of us who've served, the realization that we're part of a larger whole making a difference, um, the use of the military in terms of 
projecting national force or force for good, well, I certainly wanted to be a part of that. Uh, so I was in the middle of my studies when I decided to actually go in the reserves. And it just so happened that 11 Special Forces Group had a battalion headquarters uh, where I was growing up. And, and so I was looking for reserve units to join. You know, my ASVAB scores was such like, hey, you qualify for this thing called a Rep 63 program. Like, well, what's that? And I was like, wow, that's cool. Um, so I, I, I went in there and, um, you know, it, it was wonderful. And it was the, the decision to go in the reserves was the best thing I've ever done in my life, with the exception of marrying my wife, um, who may be listening to this podcast. Right. <laughs> so I have to get out there. But, but really, so the service in the 11th group and the 450 Civil Affairs Battalion and, and all public service is, you know, the realization that we as individuals can become part of a larger whole to be a difference, to make a difference, to be a part of greater good. Um, and certainly my time in the reserves, pretty much the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. That's awesome. So had there been anyone in your family or in your neighborhood who had served in the military? Why would you even think about joining the Army Reserve? Nobody, nobody, nobody around me, nobody in my family. Nothing, you know, my, my dad was 4F during World War II. So, I mean, so he didn't have the opportunity. Well, actually, take that back. So I didn't know my grandfather, uh, but my grandfather served in the Marines in World War I. So I had this nice. picture of him, but I never met the guy. Um, my grandmother, Hazel, I never did figure out the story. During World War II, she worked in the Navy Department and the Pentagon in World War II, but she also spent time in Brazil. She passed away, so I never figured out if she worked for OSS or what she was doing in Recife, Brazil. So there was some public service during World War II. I just didn't know what happened. But it was basically something I knew in myself that if I did not go in to the military once, way, shape, or form, that was going to be one of those deathbed things. It's like, well, I wonder if I would have made it. I wonder if how, how I would have done. And I didn't want to have that. And again, so going in was the best thing I ever did in my life. What skills or lessons do you think you learned from your time in civil affairs that helps you inform your work at USAID now? It's either coincidence or maybe by planning that, you know, most of the positions I've had uh, in my career in, in and out of uniform have been kind of external facing. So kind of the lessons learned in the civil affairs community is that you cannot operate within your silo because civil affairs is often the bridge to like, different elements in the private sector, you know, in terms of, different parts of civil society, be it water infrastructure, electoral reform. So similarly, I mean, that skill set, I mean, if you do like a Venn diagram into the, uh, the civil affairs mission and the USAID mission, there's a lot of overlap there in terms of needing to work and interface with different sectors of society. Uh, so it very much informed what's, what was going on. I feel bad for people who only have one set of experiences operating or coming up in the ranks within one silo because they don't realize the interconnectivity. A lot of this came up after 9-11. Uh, post 9-11, you know, we start talking about information sharing and needing to work more in a collaborative, in a collaborative way. So I think people in, from the civil affairs and USAID communities are really ahead of the game in terms of other people, not from both of these communities, because I think those of us who serve in either communities realize how it's a team sport and you have to leverage contacts, relationships, and how you can make your mission going further by partnering with other people. So both these communities get it. So it's a really great dovetail. Good point. Yeah, it's great to see that you understand how that Venn diagram comes across. And to that point, let me step back. I guess this is a bigger picture question. Your resume covers the three Ds, as we call them, the foreign policy, defense, diplomacy, and development. 
And because of the very large Pentagon budget, some argue that defense is the most influential of the group. However, I don't think that a lot of the listeners really comprehend the depth and breadth of what USAID does to influence around the world. Would you please describe how USAID leverages taxpayer dollars to influence our partner nations and to support allies with international development disaster assistance? One of the things I'd like to just, uh, take your listeners back to, it's a little, just a little bit of history reminder for those it's not in the forefront. So USAID was stood up, uh, was created in 1961. So 61 was also the year that, you know, uh, President Kennedy let uh, Special Forces, they authorized use of the Green Beret. So, of course, Special Forces goes back to OSS days, comes back. But 61, Kennedy says, hey, you're officially allowed to wear the Green Beret. So this legislative act that President Kennedy signed into effect, which consolidated various uh, humanitarian efforts and consolidated into USAID. So let's remember that time. So that time, great power competition. So USAID is very much the soft power projection in terms of USAID does not operate by itself untethered to other national security strategy. Quite not. Um, For any of us who've ever served in the soft community, you realize, you know, soft power projection, you appreciate what USAID does in terms of development and humanitarian assistance, we're building those people-to-people bonds. To the extent we believe, you know, that it's in the U.S. national interest, free trade among free people, we're working just on that. So just this week, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs has an article from former Secretary of Defense uh, Bill Gates talking about how there may have been an over-reliance on DOD on, you know, our presence in the world stage. And, you know, he's talking about how lamentably USAID isn't as large and robust as we used to be. So USAID plays a critical role, again, in building those people-to-people relationships and building up those institutions that make countries stronger and better partners and allies with us, not just on economic sense, but diplomatic sense and projecting American values. Sir, would you argue that it has a great return on investment, the bang for the buck of USA dollar to influence partner nations goes a long way? Yes, a- absolutely. And, but it's not really a tangible, it's not an in-your-face thing. It's the long-term play. Yeah. The long-term play of building up people. So, you know, we'll meet with, we'll meet with somebody who says, hey, when I was a little kid, I remember, you know, my family, where we were in the middle of a diaspora, and I remember this box at USAID, and I always felt strongly about the United States of America, Hard to have metrics around some of these things because you're engendering feelings and bonds of affinity with the United States, which enable deal making and other diplomatic efforts. But it absolutely is a return on investment, good return on investment. Exactly. And so what lessons from your work in other countries do you think apply to what's going on right now in American society? We've got a lot of racial, a lot, a lot of racial anger, a lot of discussion about systemic racism, uh, where that is how it shows up in American society. Are there effective approaches from creating greater inclusion that you've seen abroad that could apply domestically? What USAID foreign service officers do overseas is we promote democracy. We promote civil society. And you know we operate in places that are not optimal. So we work on things and we work on improving things. I think one of the things that makes me to be a proud American I'm not saying, we're not, nobody ever says our country's perfect, but we have the systems in place to perfect our country. So we have the right to protest. We have the right uh, to express ourselves. So certainly the things we are applying overseas, we're asking for, 
you know, we go to closed societies and we advocate for people to have the ability to peacefully protest and express themselves. The values we promote overseas are U.S. values. And, all, and these values, I think, which personally I think are going to get us through the day and, you know, we're going to be a stronger country at the end of the day. I, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, that's a good point. I bring up the question because, as you rightly uh, discussed, there's a lot of money put behind good governance and democracy and American values in other countries. So I was wondering if there have been, uh, does USA put out reports showing the impact of those projects and programs for more inclusive societies and communities and whether USA projects include trying to support minority groups or foreign partners of different racial and ethnic groups and socioeconomic status to try to bring them up from extreme poverty to have a living wage, for example, and lessons like that that we could bring back to the U.S.? It goes to who we are as Americans, what we're projecting overseas. So, for example, in Colombia, five decades of civil war. To have a lasting peace, you need to have inclusion from all marginalized elements of society, including women. So, I mean, there's no way that we can go into, again, you know, vast swaths of territory previously held by the FARC and say, okay, you marginalized group, you took up arms because you felt you were marginalized. Okay, we're going to have a peace, but you're still going to be marginalized. No, no. The whole idea is you want to give people a stake in their future. Right now, you know, COVID's affecting economies. I mean, they're taking it on the chin. Women are of an overrepresentation on the service economies and informal economies, which are being hardest by the pandemic. So it is folly to think any country is going to have a full economic recovery without the full inclusion of the women into their workforce. But that's who we are as Americans. So the values we talk about, inclusivity, and you know, it, getting marginalized people to work USAID does with our democracy and governance program. This is good stuff and we should be proud as Americans. These, these advise of who we are. Again, I, I can't, I'm not gonna comment on things going on in the streets of America, but I can say, you know, I'm proud to lead this workforce in promoting US values overseas, and which I think are great values for us here at home. You guys have an amazing team. They're great partners for the CA Force as well. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Mr. John Barsta, Acting Administrator of USAID. And we'll, after the break, we'll come back and speak with Mr. Barsta about the novel coronavirus, how that may have changed how USAID conducts business, and the transformation undergoing right now at USAID. We'll be right back. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Hi, well, welcome back to the 1CA podcast and our discussion today with Mr. John Barsa, Acting Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Sir, do you believe the, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, will change fundamentally the, the way 
USAID conducts business and provides development programs and disaster relief. And how has it changed so far? Depends on the use of the your definition of your word fundamental. It's going to change how we operate. I mean, we may be doing the same things, but the scope and scale of what we do may need to be called upon. So this is what I mean by that. So certainly on the face of it, the pandemic is a health crisis. But this pandemic is having effects on fragile democracies, societies, and economies. Uh, like I said before the break, we're, we're seeing how this pandemic is having effect on economies where, you know, the informal economy, service economies are really taking a hit. It's having a, a threat on fragile democracies as well. Food security is going to be a huge issue after this. So when you have all these things bubbling together, you are open to population displacement. So if you go to the Sahel in Africa, then you have large displacements of population. Are these people going to be more exposed to possible radicalization, more exposed to possible famine, if you add in the layer locusts? So the post-pandemic world has a lot, is going to have a lot of challenges that have nothing to do directly or with health. So we're going to have to step up the game on democracy, governance, food security, and a whole host of issues. So one of the things we're starting is uh, set up a task force to do over-the-horizon analysis of what USAID is going to need to do, not just in the six months after the pandemic, but one, three, five, ten years. And that will certainly involve, that will certainly inform our discussions with OMB, with the Hill and other places. The, the analogy I took from one of my staff is kind of the lightning and thunder. You see lightning, but it takes a couple of seconds for you to hear the thunder. So on the face of it, we have a healthcare crisis, but it's the secondary tertiary effects that are going to be perhaps the uh, most long-lasting ones. Your agency is undergoing a huge transformation right now. And that includes creating a new Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization, which would seem to create new opportunities for collaboration with the civil affairs community. What is the administration's goals with the new Bureau, and how do you believe CA forces could support the transformed USAID of the future? One of the things I've been pushing was, uh, for my time being heading up the LAC Bureau, I mean, because I understand the whole Venn diagram of this is the CA mission, this is the USAID mission, this is where they overlap. Uh, so one of the examples, and, and I'll get to your question about the new CPS Bureau. When I was traveling in Colombia, for example, I went to the northern regions of Wajira, where USAID worked with some indigenous populations. And, you know, we were doing typical development work, you know, helping get goods to market, you know, helping them out in a whole variety of ways. And I look and I see this awesome cinder block building where they had a lot of their work. I'm like, hey, man, where'd you get the building? And they're like, oh, Civil Affairs built it for us. And what? Excuse me? I still, to this day, I don't know if that was planning or serendipity, but it was such a great example of how two organizations working in the same area with the same people, because they were in the same place, each of them, their mission went further. They're able to accomplish more by being in the same place. So certainly the time Admiral Fowler uh, from Southcom, you know, he and I were talking about it. So it's not just working at the strategic level, but it's working at the tactical level. So it's real added impetus with my mission directors in the field to get with their DOD counterparts and make sure that people, you just don't tell them after the fact where you've been, but you want to plan together and share your goals together to see where these synergies could take place. So that's at one level. So what we're trying to do with the new Com Conflict Prevention and Stabilization Bureau, it's to put all our you know, experts on peace building, conflict and violence prevention in one element. So that's gonna be our primary point of contact with DOD here at the headquarters level to leverage our unique capabilities. So what the transformation is doing, it's kind of, it's been a long overdue 
re realignment of uh, USAID structures to meet the current world, what you're in. Is it sort of an organizational structure, a uh, force structure, I guess, to meet the stabilization assistance review document? Is, is some of the transformation to catch up to this document that came out, I believe, uh, 2019, talking about how in stabilization efforts, uh, state's gonna lead the policy side of things, uh, talking about what the role of USAID is gonna be, and then how CA forces essentially support what you and state do. Well, it, it's, it's more of an internal thing where basically you have different elements who, who share the same problem set, but they're housed in different areas. So part of the transformation is getting these elements into one so you can give a more comprehensive analysis. In, okay. in terms of in terms of these issues, it was more of an internal thing. It, gotcha. It's realignment. So one of the, I mean, after I mean, from your bio, from the bio you read of me, certainly people could take away from that. I can't hold a job, but the other thing is I've seen a lot. So certainly one of the things I've seen being part of the stand up of Department of Homeland Security, which was the largest reorganization of government since nineteen since the National Security Act of nineteen forty seven. So certainly what we did with DHS is get, we're getting disparate elements who have parts of a mission set and putting them together and getting them to work together and not in that same scale, but the, the transformation at USAID is to accomplish just that. So we had some different uh, skill sets and expertise. We're trying to put them all together in an organization that makes sense. It'll be more effective, not just in the field, but collaborating with DOD and other entities. Good deal. And so what's the timeline for having all this finalized and then I guess the budget process for these new bureaus would be next fiscal year? Um, certainly, yeah. Early next year, I think we'll be done early calendar year or next year. But these processes started well before my arrival under the tenure of Mark Green, my predecessor. So we're, we're on the final lap of a, of a four lap mile. Sir, uh, final couple questions for you. First, what advice would you share for young officers and NCOs in the civil affairs community? And following on that, how should they prepare for future interagency cooperation or the threats that you see to U.S. national security? Generally speaking, get out your, get out your comfort zone. Um, if you have an opportunity for a purple assignment, take it. Certainly one of the things not just benefited me, but I've seen other benefited you know, colleagues, coworkers, is the ability to draw upon other experiences. Your, your ability to see the world through other people's eyes will inform your own decision-making and they'll help you improve your partnerships and your ability to work with others. So the biggest advice I can give to everyone is to get outside of your comfort zone. You identify friction points, mitigate conflicts, know your partners and know your enemies. I mean, so. Yeah. Do you think that would involve speaking a foreign language, going on a short-term deployment, either CA or finding a part-time or, or full-time job working in the purple space or working with interagency partners? I ask because a lot of Americans don't normally feel like they have to speak a foreign language. Uh, CA forces on the active side are required to do so. It's not required on the reserve, but it's beneficial. And most of your staff either speak a foreign language or they can work through a translator pretty easily when they're in host countries. Yeah, a couple of things. So, you know, I, I grew up fully bilingual. So, you know, one day my Cuban grandmother took care of me and the other day my American grandmother took care of me. So they're like, uh, which language do you speak first, English or Spanish? I'm like, yes. Uh, growing up, I thought I thought everybody had a Cuban grandmother and an American grandmother, and I was kind of taken aback when I found out that wasn't the case. So being bicultural has given me any number of advantages. Yeah, you can always have a translator with you, but I think you always lose some nuance and skills. I have some of that now in terms of my mission staff. I'll give you 
give you one particular example. So Haiti is an interesting case. Haiti has two official languages, but the real official language of government is French. But the vast majority of people don't speak French, they speak Creole. So yeah, I can have my mission, my people on my staff go out and speak French, you know, dealing with government. But if you're going to build those people to people bonds, you know, it's one thing to have a translator there and the translator will, will get you through. You will check the box and do the job. But if you actually speak Creole, the bonds, you're going to, the, the credibility you have, the bonds, and it shows that, wow, this guy cares, this guy or gal cares enough to learn my language. It makes it a lot easier to accomplish the mission. Um, yeah. That was like the case uh, when I was in Cote d'Ivoire as a Peace Corps volunteer. We were taught French, but then when you go out to your village uh, where I was, a lot of people spoke Jula which was a, a language in West Africa across several countries, a lot right. of people who traded in the marketplace. And that was the more valuable language to understand and, and be able to converse. So I, I wonder if that's tied to any sense of maybe longer deployments uh, for CA forces or working with USAID partners in country for a longer period of time than three to six months. But, but that's kind of the manage, that's part of the management challenge I have. So it's one thing to teach somebody French because you can use that in any number of settings. If I'm sending you to language school to learn Creole, there's a limited utility for that language. You're only going to be using that in Haiti. So from the management perspective and the time perspective, how much do you invest in somebody, give, you know, give them that Creole language training? It'll make them more effective you know, on the field, in the ground, but then you have to do, well, how long is this person there? Is it really just a one-year tour and six months of it are learning a language? He's only going to... So it's yeah. not easy. Creole is going to be helpful in Haiti, but then they go to New Orleans and it might be helpful. Otherwise, where are you going to use it? Right. Where are you going, where are you going to use Creole? Um, but those are the challenges of management, which may be another episode for your podcast. Yeah. And sir, how would uh, you suggest that CA forces prepare for interagency cooperation? Do you foresee additional training exercises where USAID LNOs or liaisons are, are embedded directly with some of the CA forces? Uh, are there any training exercises or ideas that your team is trying to come up with to better connect these uh, these communities of, of all your foreign service officers and partners in, uh, for example, implementing partners with CA forces as well? How do you foresee interagency cooperation between the CA force and DOD and what you're doing at USAID? Well, I can tell you what I'm trying to do. So certainly, you know, part of my DNA, and if you appreciate this, anybody served in uniform will appreciate it. You train to fight, fight to train. And, and the other element that we all know, so many of us know, you know, planning is essential, plans are useless. So the act of planning helps you realize, you know, what your key, your key elements are, where your strategic resources are. Of course, when reality hits, the plan may come out the door. So the best training exercises are the ones that are the most realistic. Most realistic scenarios involve more than one entity. So have extensive time at Department of Homeland Security. I've deployed to multiple disasters. And so certainly like in Katrina, for example, the role of the military in Katrina, the role of the military NORTHCOM in any number of domestic disasters, certainly, you know, earthquakes, uh, anything like in the Western Hemisphere. So SOUTHCOM works with USAID. So I've certainly upped the, upped the opportunity to uh, increase training I've mentioned that at the, at the combatant command levels as I'm talking to people, but at the tactical level, you know, pushing that to um, more tabletop exercises, realistic. So I'm looking to do a tabletop exercise regarding an earthquake in Mexico. 
because I want to involve Northcom, USAID, and DHS because I want to get everybody involved. When I come into a new position, I always think of what can my worst day look like and plan for it. So I'm the guy who starts off going, where's my coop site? <laughs> What's going on? So certainly one of the things I try to do for my mid-management leaders, I make them think about what does your worst day look like? Let's plan for it, exercise it, because hopefully, God willing, the worst day won't happen. But if it does, this is how you play it out. And that may inform maybe not your worst day, but a bad day. I cannot be a stronger proponent of the need for uh, tabletop exercises and uh, all kinds of exercises. So that, that's well, my DNA. That's how DOD raised me. That's awesome to hear. So I mean, from the tactical level, we are ready to engage. We want to do that kind of stuff. And uh, it's certainly better than doing some boring admin tasks. So please call on us and uh, well, you know, connect well, us with your team. Or Roger that. So for all of you listeners, so all of the listeners of your podcast who are stationed wherever you are, reach out to my USAID staff in the mission and say, hey, your boss wants me to talk to you. So, so go ahead. You are fully authorized to go ahead and do that. So thank you so much for that, John. Sir, this has been a great discussion. Mr. John Barsa, Acting Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Sir, thanks for being on the One Safe Podcast. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care, John. Check out the Civil Affairs Call for Issue Papers. The deadline to submit a paper is August 28th. Civil Affairs can find better integration as a force for influence, collaboration, and competition for convergent threats and challenges for multi-domain and information operations, now called Joint All-Domain Operations. As the nation's warrior diplomats, the CA Corps must modernize, especially for gray zone competition and foster a learning organization. It must reinforce supported command understanding of CA Corps competencies and capabilities at tactical and operational levels. It must seize opportunities to be a greater force for influence through national strategic initiatives like the Stabilization Assistance Review and the Global Engagement Center. And it must help build an industrial base in applied social sciences and related technologies. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to submit originally written issue papers. The deadline is August 28th. For more information, including paper guidelines, visit Civil Affairs, all one word, ASSOC.org. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.